Jesus explains what it means to believe in him. There can't be a more universally held truth in the church than just this idea that we are called believers, right? We believe in Jesus. And James, the apostle James says, and demons also believe but we wouldn't accept them into membership. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Does it mean we admire him? Is it holding certain doctrinal truths? Certainly it is that, but is it just that? I believe he was born of a virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, coming again. There. There. I'm a believer. That's what we want to look at today. Because Jesus explains what it means to believe in him. We're in John 7. This is part 33, going through John's gospel. John 7, it's a lengthy text. Follow along as I read. 37 to 53. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. I want you to imagine what would that sound like? Not said. Now, cover your ears because I'm just going to. What was it? Did he cry out like that? You know, what, 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 what did that, what was going on in Jesus' heart that would make him React like that, because we don't picture Jesus typically doing that. He cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I want to talk about that in a minute. 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. That's their belief about Jesus. 41. Others said, this is the Christ. That's the Messiah. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so there was this division among the people over him. There always is. Some of them wanted to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Get this. Why didn't you bring him? You had your chance. The Pharisees said, why did you not bring him to us? 46. The officers answered, here's why we didn't bring him. No one ever spoke like this man. In other words, well, we didn't bring him because his security detail, we couldn't get it. They've really got Jesus protected. No, 
Why didn't you bring him? Well, no one ever spoke of that. This is something happening here. 47. The Pharisees, they're not happy. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Is he taking you in too? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? What's with you guys? We haven't fallen for this. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They went each to his own house. It's kind of a weird text. I have, here's what I'm doing just so you won't be shocked. I have a longer introduction with a few shorter points, okay? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus adds one more. John has eight of these, I came, I came, I came, I came, all through his letter, and only Matthew adds one more where Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring. Are you surprised by that? wasn't that long ago we were all here with candlelight. Sleep in heavenly peace. This baby and it's peace and it's silent night. And you see pictures and the baby's in the cradle and there's a glow around his head. Now here's the baby grown up. Don't think I came to bring peace to earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is not a picture, don't be confused. It's not a picture of violence. That's, it's a picture of division. And in our text, we see it again over and over. Everyone's fighting over Jesus. He's dividing the crowd the way, remember, Simeon holds the baby in his arms and he says to Mary, this is going to be for the falling and the rising of many, this baby. Falling, rising. He's going, to, he's going to split humanity. And now we're seeing it. Shouldn't be surprised. That's what his coming was all about. Look at our text. This isn't a prayer meeting. It's a brawl. The people who don't Believe in Jesus as God's redeeming Messiah. They aren't just indifferent. They're threatened. They're strident. They want him arrested, and they can't figure out why the officers didn't bring him. And don't give us this stuff like nobody spoke like this man before. Get him here. One more thing, just by the way of context, okay? On each day of this feast, this is the Feast of Booths, not the Passover yet. I talked about that last Sunday. On each day of this feast, water was drawn out of the pool of Siloam and brought to the priests while the crowd sang words from the prophet Isaiah, written hundreds of years earlier, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Okay, 
That's the image Jesus is picking up on with this rivers of living water. He sees this and he says, here, I can, I can teach with this. That's what's happening. Historians differ over what that symbol represented when they bring this water out of the pool and pour it out for the priests. Some thinks it pictured the water from the rock, remember? Others think it's a symbol of the blessing of God sending rain for the next harvest. Either way, this water poured out. It signified thankfulness and trust for the kind of life-giving water that only God provides. People would perish without water. Now, here's why all this Old Testament background. We don't live under that covenant. I get it. But here's why all this Old Testament background matters. This is the setting for Jesus' loud cry at the feast. On the last day of the feast, he just sees this, this water being poured out. Jesus stands up, cries out, if anyone thirsts. See, there's the image he's picking up on. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow livers. Yeah, livers. (laughs) Not livers. Rivers of living water. So, so, here's what Jesus is saying. And I'm almost done with the introduction. What that physical water in the wilderness did for human thirst, what Jesus does for the spiritual thirsts of all mankind. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's grabbing onto an image and he's teaching important truth with it. Jesus stands to his feet quickly, shouts out that he is God's answer to the deepest spiritual thirsts of sinful people, and he cries out because he knows he doesn't have much time left. He will be executed dead in six months. The Passover. And there's this longing There's this deep emotion in his voice as he cries out to push his point home. It's not the first time Jesus used this imagery of himself as water. I don't want to bore you, but I think it's important to see he did this a couple times. It seemed to be one of his favorite images. He described himself, remember, in conversation with the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water which I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come and draw water. Didn't get it. Now, what makes our text in John 7 just slightly different is the way Jesus lays emphasis on the giving of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice it? He's talking about living water, a spring of water coming up in believers. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe, that's what we're looking at this morning. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Those who believed in him were to receive, as of yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. doesn't mean he wasn't the Son of God. Glorified means crucified, raised from the dead, ascended, glorified. That hasn't happened yet. 
Why do people need that? Well, that's where they're going to put their faith. (laughs) This will be an important theme in today's text. And as you'll see, there were different responses to Jesus' words, his impassioned yelling. Some thought he must be a, a great prophet that Moses had promised, verse 40. Some were divided over whether he may or may not be the Messiah, 41 to 44. Some wanted to arrest him and get rid of him for good, 45 to 49. All of these responses only highlight how desperately they needed to hear Jesus' words with understanding. A prophet would just bring teaching. They'd had lots of teachers. There are still lots of teachers. Hasn't affected much. The Messiah, some thought, but the Messiah they were looking for wasn't one who would die for their sins on a cross. He would deliver Israel from Roman oppression. Clearly, Jesus means more than either of these things. He still does. Jesus very boldly announces that he was God's means of forgiving and transforming human lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. That brings us to some of the lessons from the text. I I said, remember, point number one. Jesus takes every possible opportunity to present himself as the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament age of expectation. You can see it in a couple places. I'll just go quick. 737, on that last great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I know that's not a new idea, but I've been awakened all over again to the conscious, repeated effort of Jesus to constantly link himself and his work with the Old Testament. In chapter 2 of John's Gospel, we already looked at this, he compares himself with the temple. Remember this? Jesus said to them, the religious leaders, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. What's Jesus doing? Jesus boldly announces Just like he fulfills Isaiah's prophecy about the springs of water, he fulfills the purpose of the temple. He announces that he will replace the temple as the only place people will meet God. Then in chapter 3, he equates his coming with Moses' bronze serpent in the wilderness. Remember that story? Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, lifted up on the cross, that whoever believes, that's what we're looking at, may have eternal life. Remember the story, the children of Israel being bitten by snakes and they're dying left and right. It was a curse sent from God because of their disobedience. What are they going to do? And Moses says, you put up a brass serpent on a pole, a cross, and then tell the people, everyone who looks at that will be healed. Now Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up. 
believing is not just acknowledging I existed, it's looking to that cross. He makes the comparison again. He does it one more time. Chapter 4. He talks about his life-giving, nourishing power and likens it to the manna that God sent in the wilderness. This is the last one. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. You think Moses did this? My father. And then he says, gives the true. Oh, Jesus is, he's switching metaphors right in the middle of it. The true bread from heaven. For the bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And then Jesus said, isn't that beautiful? I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's just no missing what Jesus is doing in all of these texts. I could have used more. He chose to show how the whole old covenant, what you call your Old Testament in your Bible, It was all pointing to him. It was getting the world ready for him. These are shocking words. True, all the Old Testament accounts are inspired. I'm not saying they're less inspired or not God's word. They're important for our understanding. But you have to see why they're there. Paul talked about this in Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in the former days, he's talking about the Old Covenant, was written for our instruction, that through endurance, through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Notice, let me just say this. There's got to be someone that needs to hear this. It is through the Scriptures that you're going to fill your life with hope. It's the 14th of January already. What have you been doing with the Scriptures? Through the encouragement of the Scriptures, you're going to get hope. Here's what it, if you're not feeding your life, I don't care about everything else you do. If you're not feeding your life on God's Word, you're going to be hopeless. It's through the encouragement of the Scriptures that you're going to find hope. But it's important to remember how we receive benefit from these Old Testament texts. We don't receive benefit just by putting ourselves under the law. We don't come to the Old Testament reading it as though Jesus had never come. We come seeing the fulfillment of Jesus in all those texts. Okay, point number two. Belief in Jesus, what is belief in Jesus? It's described in three continuous verbs. This is how I'm going to kind of wrap up. But we're not wrapping up yet. Don't want you. Three verbs. Thirsting, coming, drinking. They're all right here. On that last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and We should be grateful that Jesus took the effort to flesh out ideas so simply 
flesh out ideas that can easily just become religious cliches. It, it's almost as though our Lord knew how subtly and how easily we can keep using the right words but emptying them of their meaning. And believing in Jesus has to be at the top of that list. We can become hollow Christians. And so Jesus cries out, 37, whoever believes in me, that's the topic. Everybody in his dog talks about believing in Jesus, but they don't always mean what Jesus means. And like I said in the opening, James says the devils believe. They know who Jesus is. But it's useless belief. So three verbs. Thirst. This isn't complicated. Monosyllabic words. Thirst. Laid down as the very first component of belief. How are we going to define spiritual thirst? Well, probably... Look at what physical thirst is. More than anything, if it's a hot day, really hot day, you can't find water, thirst is recognizing a need. No one's going to come to Jesus out of duty. We come to Jesus out of thirst. Now, you, you, may, you, may, you may make a quarter million dollars a year. You've got a degree at university. You have a happy marriage. Your kids are all doing great. Mortgage is paid off. You have a nice car. What thirst are you talking about? Well, there's eternal life. There's the fact that we're all made in the image of God and fallen and sinful. There's the fact that you, you, you can't fill yourself up with all of these things. Thirst is a perceived lack, a growing desire for Christ that can't be quenched with anything else and can't be ignored. Thirst means a gnawing awareness that something is missing and that something is Christ-shaped. Thirsting for Jesus, let me put it this way, thirsting for Jesus is ceasing to write out the prescription for your own fulfillment and handing the pen and paper over to Jesus. It means letting him write out his prescription for your present and future joy. Thirsting for Jesus is coming to the place where you no longer trust yourself with the management of your own life. It's realizing that self-rule in itself is a form of personal pride gradually separating you from God. Take this first step seriously. If anyone thirsts, this is Jesus' way of saying no one else need apply. You have to feel the emptiness and the desire. You can't come that's the second step. You can't come to Jesus the way you come to your debit machine. He will never share the management of your life. The desire to be ruled and led by Christ must be as dominating and all-consuming as a parched thirst craves water. Thirst. Secondly, come. 
Jesus makes this as, as simple as possible. There's no hurdle. There's nothing earned. Just come. The verb means leaving one point and moving on to another. You can't come to one place or person without leaving another. It's not complicated. So let's do it this, Chris. Do Chris and let's do let's do Blake. Come. It's gonna be gobs of fun. So here we are. Now you're over there with Blake. You guys are together. Okay? Now I say, Chris, come. So Chris comes. Comes. Now to come to me, what's he have to do to Blake? This isn't rocket science, is it? The reason I did this, you, you won't believe the number of people. Okay, thanks, guys. You can't believe the number of people who try to come to Jesus without leaving the way they used to live. And I thought maybe you could just... See the distance growing between the two of them. That's what coming to Jesus means. You you can't come to Jesus and stay where you are. To come to Jesus means leaving self-rule. To come to Jesus means leaving old habits. It's gradual. I'm not saying you become perfect overnight, but that's that's what coming to Jesus means. Coming to Jesus means more than thinking nice thoughts about him. Oh. It means forming the habits of genuine discipleship. Don't tell me you're coming to Jesus if you can't go to church regularly. Don't tell me you're coming to Jesus if you can't grow in the word. Don't tell me you're coming to Jesus if you can't grow in your devotional life. That's what coming means, leaving what was before, coming to Christ. It means movement in your life. You can't just dream about it, talk about it, think about it. You come. Here's what just can so easily happen. A carelessness can take over my life. And then what happens is people who don't really come to Jesus, who just leave it in the realm of thoughts, they're going to come to the mistaken notion that Christianity didn't work for them or they'll get mad at God for not catering to them. And all the while, the truth of the matter is they never came in the first place. Jesus talked about, Jesus talked about this in 1 John 2, 23 to 25. Here's people who, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many, here's what we're looking at, right? Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Great. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people 
and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. These people say they believe, but they don't, they don't really believe. They're just impressed with me. That's not the same thing. I'd like to say to everyone in the room, he loves you with an everlasting love. Jesus will commit himself to you when you commit yourself to him. Drink, the last one. I think Jesus deliberately chose this image. These are his words. He chose this image of one substance actually entering another. It's not wash, that's external. Drink takes it inward. That's what believing in Jesus entails. No thirst was ever quenched by pouring water over your head. Drinking is, it's internalizing. It's taking it in. It's absorbing it. It's soaking it up. Is Jesus, is Jesus confronting my tendency to talk more than I do? Was he calling all of us to make sure our believing in him wasn't lazy or haphazard? Was he trying to remind us how quickly we can just deal with the outsides without internalizing his agenda, his ambitions? He said it. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. That's what Jesus meant by this inside-out belief. Nothing, nothing in belief in Jesus will seem engaging until the will is brought into the routines of life. Jesus says, you do, then you'll know. Do, then you'll be sure. Three. The anticipated Holy Spirit and his outflowing life. This is what Jesus talked about in 38 and 39. Whoever believes, there it is, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit, capital S, whom those who believed in him were to receive. As of yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So now we come to the nub of life in Christ. Jesus has a promise. There's this new day coming. It would follow his death, resurrection, ascension. That this was essential in the mind of Jesus is borne out by his repeated emphasis on the Spirit's coming. You can see it there in John 14, 16, and 17. You can see it in John 37, 38, and 39. You can see it in John 16, 5, and 7. The Spirit would come. This is not just an intellectual thing. It's not just a religious thing. Jesus, Jesus comes by his Spirit into the heart of the one who believes, the way we've been talking about believing. Four. Then, as now, Jesus is the great lightning rod dividing the opinions of mankind. You can see it in our whole text. 
What a mixed bag of response. People who's, who sort of believed, liked his works, liked the miracles. People who were mistaken and informed in what they knew about Jesus, thinking he was born in Galilee instead of Bethlehem. People who just wanted Jesus dead and off the scene so he could no longer interfere with their lives. One man, Nicodemus, he seems in process of enlightenment, trying his best to stick up for Jesus without maybe sticking his neck out too far with the religious leaders. So then as now, everything revolves around Christ. Sides are drawn up. People begin to declare something of their own inner condition and understanding. Some people will truly know and serve him. Some never will. But the officers were right. Verse 46, quote, no one ever spoke like this man. There never has been another Jesus and there never will be. He lives, he rules, he reigns, he's coming again. Believe. Do you know him? Do you know him? Does he rule your heart? Have you come to him in the sense of departing from the other idols and loyalties of life? Don't miss life's greatest decision, greatest opportunity. And don't settle for a religious notion. Make sure your belief involves thirsting, a real inward thirst not just for a routine. Coming. Coming to him, moving your direction in his, your life in his direction. So, so 